Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from our listeners. We cannot do it without you. Thank you so much. I'm Katie Sewell in Seattle. My co-host Tiffany is in Rome, Italy. We are both working hard, but underemployed during this pandemic. So if you love the show and have the means, please support it. There are links in the show notes to Patreon or visit thebittersweetlife.net and click the donation button. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Diane Cardwell. She's an award-winning journalist, a former reporter for the New York Times, and she helped found Vibe magazine. She's also author of a brand new book titled Rockaway, Surfing Headlong into a New Life. Thanks so much for being here. From how I read it, the book is sort of an adventure in reinvention. Yeah. But it begins with a lot of loss. Mm -hmm. So I thought just to set the stage for everybody, where were you when you started out on your journey? So I was a number of years out of a divorce. Um, I can't remember exactly how many, but I was still, I had started kind of a recovery, but I was still not sure how I was going to be happy again who I wanted to be, how I was going to sort of recapture this sense of possibility that I felt I had lost. I was working for the New York Times as a reporter covering the hospitality industry in New York. So and I was spending a lot of time on my own in bars and restaurants <laughs> and hotel lobbies and um, which was, you know, that's not a bad thing necessarily. <laughs> but but I did, I, I did feel very much like I was spending a lot of time watching other people's lives unfold and not really sure what mine should be. In that sort of state, I w went out to Montauk for a weekend to report a story about kind of the gentrification out there. And I knew that it was a surf town. And so I thought, well, maybe I should go talk to some surfers and see what, see what they think about all this. And I made my way to a surf beach the very first time I'd ever been to one. And I think of this as almost like the eureka moment that I didn't realize was going to be this incredible turning point for me. But I saw live surfing with very mellow little waves that looked like they wouldn't kill you. <laughs> very important. <laughs> and, and I just I was just transfixed by these incredibly beautiful, free looking people. And I kind of thought, well, maybe I could do that. So was it the people or the ocean? What was it exactly that drew your eye? I think it was both. I mean, the water that day was just the most beautiful kind of sparkly dark blue. It almost looked like, you know, a sheet of sequined material kind of undulating. And so that was really captivating and looked inviting in a way. You know, I'd grown up, you know, my only real connection with surfing was watching Wide World of Sports, right? Those just gigantic, gigantic waves that were terrifying to me. <laughs> so... There was this beautiful ocean and then the people just, they were gliding on it in what seemed to be the most beautiful and graceful way. And that appealed to me too. And they just, they just looked so cool and free. And I just thought, Ooh, I want a little bit of that. It's interesting, this notion you brought up about being a reporter and how you get in this position sometimes of covering other people's lives. I have felt that in my career 
a thousand times, you know, <laughs> particularly when you meet people who are experts in their field in something and you think, well, what would it be like to be an expert in the field of anything? Because you're just such a dabbler. Right. But it, just to make the contrast even more interesting about where you are today versus where you were then, what kind of a life had you built when you were still married, for instance? What was your day-to-day -day reality? What were you hoping and dreaming for at that time? Well, my day-to-day -day reality was pretty intense, right? I mean, you, you get up early in the morning, and I would always wake up with like a tape loop of what I needed to do that day and the things I hadn't gotten to yesterday and anxiety about how I was going to get it all done. And, you know, it just felt like a lot of racing around. And my hopes and dreams were pretty much to have more of the life that I have now. And I don't think I entirely realized that, but I did know that I wanted someday to have more control over my time, more time to spend in my garden. Surfing wasn't really part of that back then, but certainly the ability to just be and relax and garden and hang out with my friends and entertain and all of that. Yeah. So you were aiming for that, but you were I mean, did you have that in some semblances when you were back in that old life? Sure, sure. I mean, we, my ex-husband and I had a pretty active social life and we had, you know, a group of friends who lived in Brooklyn. And so there was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I write in the book how part of what happened is that I mistook having a good time for being happy for a long time because they're really not the same thing, even though they are related, right? But Eric and I had a lot of fun together. We had a lot of fun with our friends, but I just had this kind of nagging feeling of dissatisfaction and I wasn't entirely sure what it was about. Hmm. That's really interesting, that distinction. You say that in the book that when your husband tells you that he doesn't want to be married anymore, it sort of blindsides you. Mm -hmm. How did you see yourself in that period of time? I, I didn't recognize myself. I literally was like, how did I miss all of this, right? How did I not see this coming, right? It just made me feel like, I don't know, just a big idiot that I had been focused on all the wrong things, not focused on the right things. Felt a certain kind of, I know this may be a strange word to use, but I felt a certain kind of incompetence, right? Like I wasn't good at life in some way. Although it was interesting because, of course, part of that was feeling like, well, I have all these friends and they're married and they're happy and they have kids and they have these lovely homes and these wonderful lives. And now I'm not going to have any of that. And then as soon as I started telling my friends that we were splitting up, literally with they would be very, very comforting and kind for about a minute and then they would pivot to what was so awful and terrible in their own marriages. Hmm. And so I just thought, who's happy out there? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting right. question. Right. You do say in the book that in a way your life reset and that for you that you had to accept that it was going to reset no matter how it comes. Mm -hmm. How did you go about doing that? Accepting like, okay, what else is out there for me? Right. Well, part of that, I think, was just stubbornness. You know, I, I really, really, really wanted to be happy again. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life waking up every morning feeling low. <laughs> and and also, it's funny what you said, though, about reporting, right? And and that you're you're spending so much time with all these other people who are doing interesting things or wonderful things. And one of the things that I took some inspiration from 
So I felt like everyone that I interviewed, whether they were restaurateurs or, or, you know, later in other beats, scientists and what have you, I got the distinct sense that they loved what they did and that they got up out of bed super motivated to do what they were going to do that day. And I thought, and so there, I had this kind of sense of, you know, you need to have a life where you feel that way too. And you know, I loved the work of what I was doing, but I didn't love everything else about that lifestyle. Yeah. So you see these surfers on this <laughs> beautiful ocean, <laughs> but you don't know how to surf yet. <laughs> so how does this even begin? Where do you where do you just right. decide I'm going right. to do this? I'm going to do this. So and, you know, I still don't really surf very well, even all these years into it. <laughs> hey, I mean, you started from the beginning. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> impressive alone. To say. But um, so when I came off the beach, I noticed there was a little yellow house with a for rent sign. And it made me feel like the universe was trying to tell me something. And so even though I hesitated for a minute, like I almost didn't take down the number, almost talked myself out of it. I decided, no, I'm going to go back and I'm going to take down the number. And I ended up, very nice woman opened the door. And I ended up renting the house, coming back and taking a lesson. And I think, you know, I am a big believer in lessons. I think there, you know, there are all these different ways that if you want to pursue pretty much anything, you can find a way to start. You know, now that we have the internet, it's so much easier to find those things, whether they're workshops or online communities or affinity groups or what, whatever it is, you can find a way to start. And so that for me was the way, you know, a lot of people who have friends who surfed and they got interested in surfing, they say things like, yeah, my friends, you know, they just took me to the beach. They gave me a board and a wetsuit and pretty much said, see ya. And, you know, I remember a, and a guy actually I, who I interviewed told me that. And I thought, yeah, that wouldn't really work for me. <laughs> I need some structure right, and support in what I'm doing. So I've only watched my sister take one surf lesson. So I can't <laughs> say I know much about it beyond um, what I observed her learning on the beach. But what kept you going? It doesn't look like it's the easiest thing to accomplish to learn to do. So what keeps you at it? is not easy. And it is it is full of setbacks and frustrations, and in my case, injuries and all of that. But what keeps me going is that I love it. It just feeds my soul and makes me feel good and happy in a way that nothing else really does. Um, and there are a number of different reasons for that, right? Some of it is the actual just that feeling of whoosh that you get when you're riding a wave. And this kind of tapping into this mystical energy that's coming out of the deep and being part of the ocean and seeing pods of dolphins just over the nose of your board. That stuff is just really, really wonderful. And then I've developed a pretty strong community of like-minded, really lovely people. And I wouldn't have met them without surfing. Yeah, I was going to ask, what is the community vibe once you learn to surf? What kind of community is built up around that? Well, I think it depends. I think that surf communities are, pre are different all over. But there is a kind of commonality of interest. I have had really excited conversations in the water with friends where it's just like, oh, my God, look at the color of the water. It's amazing. Right. So there's just this 
kind of sense of true emotion and love and wonder of sort of that natural world around us. The other thing is, and this was a funny thing that I discovered, you know, the stereotype of surfers, I think at least in many of our heads, mine certainly was, you know, Jeff Spicoli from <laughs> Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, like stoner dudes who hang out on the beach and don't have anything to do and blah, you know, <laughs> certainly those, those people totally exist. But what's interesting is that because you have to plan your life around your opportunities to surf because they are not constant, surfers are among the most organized, ambitious, can-do people I have ever come across because it's all about, it's like, okay, how am I going to get this set up so that I can be in the water by 5.30 in the morning, so I can be out by 7, so I can get to my job by 9, mm -hmm. right? And that's just a way that people organize their lives. That spirit, that kind of can-do-ism, really, I saw that come into play a lot after Sandy because people were just willing and ready to help and just got up and to, just to get up and do it, whatever needed to be done. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that with Hurricane Sandy striking you guys so severely. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a larger question. I was thinking in reading that, that this seems like a moment when you're solidly in that life now. And I don't know if there was a different moment where you, you know, you go from renting the little yellow house for a month mm -hmm. to fully embracing this as a lifestyle and reorganizing your life. Is there a moment when you feel like I am now solidly out of my job in my life in mm -hmm. New York and fully in this other thing? Well, I guess it's it was more a, a transition to I am solidly out of my old life in Brooklyn and in my new life in Rockaway. And that transition took a long time, right? I think it was about it was either maybe a year, maybe two from the time that I first, yeah, almost, like 18 months from the time that I first saw surfing in Montauk and I ended up moving to Rockaway. And, you know, it was baby steps in a way. I just, I started coming out to, um, to Rockaway every weekend pretty much to take lessons. I was hanging out with a, my friend Bob on his porch, getting to know, I was developing a group of friends who surfed, um, women who also came out every weekend it just started to feel like, you know what, I am at my happiest when I am in Rockaway, whether I'm surfing or not, just this place makes me feel good. And so I want to have a way to be out here and stumbled across a couple of, um, you know, apartments and houses, and then finally ended up pulling the plug and buying a tiny little bungalow right near the beach. That's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was that was six months before Sandy. But so that by the time Sandy came around, I was just so excited to be here and just deeply in that life. So there was no, there was no question that I was going to stay. And what about the hurricane? Did that shift the community in a significant way? Well, it certainly affected the community significantly, right? I mean, we were inundated and, you know, houses swept off their foundations and basements flooded like a hundred houses in Brizzy Point burned, people died. I mean, it was, it was really a disaster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's no other word for it. But what I saw, at least in my little part of Rockaway, was an incredible coming together. And it was really something that like made me feel good about people again in some <laughs> fundamental way, um, just to see how you know neighbors digging out each other's basements 
friends of mine started a relief hub, made a relief hub out of the Rockaway Beach Surf Club. We all pooled supplies on my neighbor's porch. So that was really a spectacular thing to say to see. And also that a lot of the people who were helping were surfers. I mean, it's a my friend Brandon said when he was at the surf club, he was like, you know, who's coming out here to help with shovels and, and what have you? It's surfers. It's all those surfers from Brooklyn and Manhattan who I saw all summer at the club are coming now to help. Hmm. So since we're in the middle of a pandemic, this is sort of an aside, <laughs> um, but since we're in the middle of a pandemic, how has that affected this life that you've built, this surfing community and so much interpersonal camaraderie? Right. Well, so it has meant that I don't see my friends in person quite as much <laughs> as I used to, really not at all. So, I mean, I think we've been pretty lucky in Rockaway that we don't have a hugely dense population. And so there's a lot of outdoor things to do, like go to the beach, go in the ocean. And that makes it feel a little less like you're just stuck inside your house, you know, with your mask. Um, mm -hmm. But the other thing is people have created all sorts of online networks so that they can help each other out, you know, deliver supplies to people who can't go get them, so on and so forth. So, but, you know, people have been surfing through the pandemic. I was not. I only recently started going back in the water because it seemed very clear to me that it wasn't a good way to catch it, right? But early on, it just, I, there was just so little information. I was like, I'm just going to stay in. Yeah, stay in. You know, <laughs> you just finished writing a book. You can relax for a little while. <laughs> right. It's no easy feat to write a book. Right, right. So going back, though, one of the things that you write, and I'm going to just quote you here because I just wrote it down. I thought it'd be easier than me trying to paraphrase. You write that you were plagued by the scratchy notion that I was somehow unrealized, that I hadn't accomplished what I should have and could have if I had just started sooner. And you write that in, in a section where you're talking about this draw you had to want to have a child. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that, and then, um, and then we'll talk a little bit more about that quote specifically. Okay. So I guess I had always thought I would have a, have a child and wanted to but never really took it on as a project, mm -hmm. right? Like never said, okay, now we have to try. Even though some of the other major choices I made, like really wanting to have, you know, extra bedrooms and what have, were based on this idea that I was going to have a life with children and maybe some dogs and, you know, people coming over all the time and that kind of, mm -hmm. a kind of fantasy life that, that many of us have in our heads sometimes. But so when Eric and I ended up splitting up, um, ended up deciding to stop trying to have a kid and to go to couples counseling and work on our relationship and then eventually divorce, I was left with this sort of like, well, what am I going to do about that? Um, and so I talked to a lot of my friends who had gone through in vitro. I talked to people who had adopted. I, and so I was trying to figure out how I was going to manage this. Um, I, I did go through a number of rounds of in IVF, which did not work. And, you know, I was very sad about that. It was not easy to get over. It also happened to coincide with a downturn in my father's health. There was a lot for me to process <laughs> all at once. But I was also learning to surf at the time. And so I'd had to put surfing on hold for a while and then went back to it. And again, surfing was something that helped me feel like here is something I can do 
that makes me feel better. Yeah. And then when you realize that it's shifted, this kind of feeling that you could have accomplished this if you'd only like buckled down. Mm-hmm. And then one day you just didn't feel that way anymore. Right. What do you think the change was there? What shifted? I think what shifted is that I created a life that I liked. Right. I had actually after, so I've gone through my marriage falls apart. My father dies. I can't get pregnant on my own. I find this new great life that I'm loving that I don't know where it's going to lead, but I'm loving it. And then my neighborhood gets destroyed by a superstorm. (laughs) So, so it's like, I was pretty, pretty sort of rocked by all that. But when I did finally kind of realize I like this life, right. And sort of coming out of Sandy surfing again and starting to surf actually halfway decently and having my, my community feel very strong and solid I was like, you know what, I, I like this life the way it is. And I don't think I want to upend it yet again, to try to have a kid on my own. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that you you write toward the end, this is I love this concept. You note how how easily it might have been to never found any of these things that you discovered that you could have made any number of choices that didn't lead you into this life. Right. And they also, you acknowledge that how easily all of it can be lost. I'm sure right. Sandy taught you that as well um, among, among right. this pen or this pandemic or who knows, you know, what. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's interesting. Do you have anything else you would expand on that, that, that sort of discovery? Well, I guess it's, it's kind of a, a I don't know. I, I, I always just think you got to live for now, right? Because you never know what is coming around the corner and you have to, stay open to the possibilities that come your way. I think if I hadn't ever found any of these particular things, I probably would have found something that would have helped sustain me and drive me forward. It just would have been different. I mean, I've often thought, what if I had gotten pregnant and had kids then, or a kid then, then that would have been, right, the different life that I was living. But Mm -hmm. I'm really glad I stumbled into this one. You know, this is also a lesson from surfing that you have to make the most of what you have and be aware of of what your possibility is right now, right? Like, what are your options right now? Rather than, as I did, focus so much on what's coming down the road and trying to make sure everything's in place perfectly so that when that thing that you're expecting happens, you know, it'll all be great. And it's like, well, then that thing doesn't happen. And then what? Yeah, that's interesting. A lot of people who listen to this show some of them have made major life decisions, but some of them are trying to sort out whether or not whatever lingering idea or dream they had in their head is too late mm-hmm. in coming. Uh, it's too late to start again. They have an established job, for instance, and they think about living in Tuscany all the time. And, and they think, well, how could I possibly quit this job and do that? That's That would be crazy. Um, do you have any, any advice being an example of a person who very much reinvented yourself? Right. Well, I, I think you have to focus on what it is that is going to bring you the greatest happiness and not get so caught up in the status of what you have, you know, or maybe some of the material things that you're able to have, you have to figure out is is that stuff really more important? Like is this job and whatever the status or income that it brings me and and the life that that affords, is that more important than 
constructing a life around living in Tuscany year-round. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe the choice isn't that binary, but but maybe it is. And you have to, I mean, I, a lot of people think I was, you know, look at me, I'm like, you gave up a job at the Times and you gave up, you know, your this house in Brooklyn and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, but I have a life that makes me so much happier that way. I don't, <laughs> I don't have a big house <laughs> anymore, yeah, yeah. but I have a happy house. And I think sometimes it's something that hooks people up is fear. It's that mm-hmm. financial mm-hmm. insecurity or, you know, exactly not knowing what's coming around the corner. Did you face any of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I should say that that makes a decision like this easier for me than it might be for other people is that I can work from anywhere. I'm a writer and, you know, researcher, reporter. And so those are skills that I did feel like I would be able to support myself in some fashion with those skills, even without having a full time job, you know, with a vaunted institution. So and not everybody has that, and I understand, right? So, mm-hmm. so maybe it isn't so easy. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing that was so um, lucky for me, in a way, is that I could reinvent myself and change my life without throwing everything up in the air and running off to some other country. You know, it wasn't like the the sort of traditional surf narrative, right, where you chuck it all and you know buy a VW bus and <laughs> you know drive from surf spot to serve spot. And so so I was able to actually, you know, I mean, I kept my job for quite a while, while I was, you know, having the surf adventure, because I could be right here in New York. Yeah, yeah. It's almost as if you you did the dip your toes in the water. <laughs> right, right, right. First, yeah, give it a try. And you know, that is often a good way to decide whether you want to make a big shift is to make a little shift first. Yeah. So just and uh, one other thing that you write, is that uh, earlier in your life, you were spurred on by notions of achievement and happiness and making it, quote unquote, making it. And that was the wrong thing for you to be motivated by. So I'm curious what notions drive you now. What feels good? What brings me joy? What makes me really happy every day? And those are the things that I try to focus on. And those are the things that I try to organize my life around. Um, It doesn't mean that I am enjoying every single thing that I have to do every day, (laughs) all all day, (laughs) right? I mean, we all have tasks that need to be done. But that's really what it's been about for me and not worrying so much about the result, like how good a surfer am I ever going to be? It's just how much can I experience surfing in my life every day. Yeah. So can you give us a picture? What are some of those things that are making you happy all day? Well, this morning, this morning, I was out, you know, out in the garden, kind of cutting back the tomato plants that had gotten a little too leggy and, you know, installing some edging around a path. And so that makes me really happy, you know, just creating, growing things and creating a, a really comfortable space. Right. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a serial decorator. I, I like to nest. <laughs> so, and so those that was in surfing and hanging out with Todd and, and the cat. Yeah, that's great. Uh, the book is Rockaway Surfing Headlong into a New Life. Thanks so much, Diane, for joining us. Thanks for having me. And of course, we'll put links in the show notes if you want to read more, if you want to be able to find the book. Because of the pandemic, we usually do a book giveaways, and they're not doing those as much anymore. So you guys are going to have to go ahead and order this yourself this time. Please do. 
And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks for listening. Our logo is designed by Jody Rick at The Lost Laboratory, with help from our muse, Caravaggio. Lori Lee Elliott manages The Bittersweet Life on YouTube. We have a brand new newsletter. If you want to hear what we're reading and thinking about once a month, let us know by sending an email to bittersweetlife at mail.com, and we'll put you on the list. And some of you write us the most beautiful emails. If you haven't already, leave us a review as well on your podcast app. Your support is vital to the show, so whether you send in a financial contribution at thebittersweetlife.net or spread the word about the show to your friends or through your social media by writing an article or doing an interview with us, we appreciate your support. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for keeping this show going. Take care, be safe, talk soon.